Merry Christmas, everyone. Well, you may notice that we're not in uh, one of our campuses today. We're actually in somebody's home. The reason we're doing that is because all of you are in your homes as well. You know, each week, it takes an incredible group of volunteers to pull off our Sunday services and all that's going on in our campuses. We thought that one of the best ways to care for our volunteers and just show them a little love was to come back into the home on the Sunday after Christmas. This is our thank you to all of you who serve so much. Well, I'm really excited for what we have in store today, and I'm looking forward to just all that we are going to be doing together while we may be separate, but as one church. So if you're ready, let's warm up our vocal cords, let's get ready to sing, and let's get ready to worship with the band.
Merry Christmas. It's good to be with you, even in this virtual context. Uh, I want to share a, a deeply personal story with you, uh, something that's, that's entrenched in my family's history. Uh, we call it the Game Boy incident. Uh, the way my brother, my younger brother would tell you this story is that one day uh, I was particularly angry with him. Um, he's four and a half years younger than I am. And, and, and to show that anger to him, to show that frustration uh, to him, I took his Game Boy, his beloved Game Boy, his green Game Boy. And uh, I went outside and I got the lawnmower and I started the lawnmower up and I threw his Game Boy on the ground and I ran over it with the lawnmower until it was just destroyed and in pieces. Uh, my brother has told this story so often. He told this story at my wedding. Like this, this story has become part of our family. But here's the thing, that's not the real story. That, that doesn't sound like me, does it? Like I wouldn't do something like that. And if you're thinking, well, Josh, I don't really know you. You're new here. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. Here's what really happened. I was mowing the lawn and it was boring mowing the lawn. And so I borrowed my brother's Game Boy and I'd lean on the front of the lawnmower as I'd walked around playing the Game Boy, kind of doing the lines in the, in the yard. My dad loved the lines. And we get to, we have this little hill sort of right by our driveway. And so I took the Game Boy and I don't have any pockets in my shorts. And so I stuck it in the waistband of my shorts and I was pulling the lawnmower back down the hill and the Game Boy slipped out of my pocket. And before I could stop, slipped underneath the lawnmower and I destroyed it. I felt very bad because here's the thing. I like the Game Boy too. The point of this is the Game Boy ends up destroyed in both stories, right? It ended up destroyed in both stories. The Game Boy ended up broken. We did not have a Game Boy. But the story didn't happen the way that my brother would tell it. it that story had morphed into something different over the years. There was truth there, but it had become changed through the retelling of it to be a little bit different than it really was. And we're going to look at that same idea as we look at a Christmas carol, We Three Kings. That's a great story. It's a significant part of Christmas. And there's great truth in this song, but that moment is really a little bit different than we might understand it. Now, We Three Kings was written by Reverend John Henry Hopkins. He was born in Pittsburgh in 1820. So this is back in the day. And in 1857, he wrote We Three Kings as part of a Christmas pageant that he wrote for his nieces and nephews. So this guy was, was, a cool, was the cool uncle, all right? Now, it, it wasn't published until 1863 when he put out a Carol's Hymns and Songs songbook. But that song has become very significant. We, we sing that song a lot. That's become culturally known. And it goes like this. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. The last verse I love it is glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, sounds to the earth and skies. What, is that song, what does that song mean? What's it talking about? What's the significance of that song? It's talking about a real thing that happened, right? Christmas is a thing that exists. We're, we celebrated that yesterday. And so Christmas demands a response from us because it is a thing. Whether we believe it or not, it demands a response from us. And we tend to misunderstand the moment, not on purpose, but we tend to misunderstand the moment. And so the question as we dive into this is, are we going to engage with Christmas as a real historical thing that happened? 
Or are we going to wrap it up in a neat little package to pull it out once a year as an excuse to drink eggnog? Because seriously, there's a reason we don't drink eggnog the rest of the year. Eggnog is like the beverage form of like a bear tranquilizer. After I have a little bit of eggnog, it's like I need a nap. Think of the way we talk about the nativity. Think of the way we, talk, we, we set up nativity scenes at, at Christmas time, right? We, we take out characters and we set them up and we have this nice little image, this little tableau of we got some, some kings, we have some shepherds as well. You know, we got their little, their little animals here and like they're like hanging out and talking with each other. And, and poor Mary's there with like this little baby and there's strangers around. And that's kind of how we, we visualize this. That's a pretty crazy thing to think about, though. It's a pretty crazy moment, right? Because we like this neatly packaged image. Mary, Joseph, Jesus, shepherds, wise men, animals, angels, all this stuff. That's sort of like the hallmark version of Christmas. And we, we do that with the story that We Three Kings sings about. Sometimes we have a post-delivery view of the wise men showing up, right? Like Mary gives birth, and then they're right there. I, I've seen my four children born. That's kind of a terrifying thought because I can't imagine any woman wants to give birth and then suddenly have strangers they don't know show up in the room. Like, that's not a great experience. The, the, the moment when a child is born, I mean, that's a beautiful thing, but the process of it is disturbing. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening. There's like crying. I've seen stuff that I can't unsee. And so it, it, it's, it's a thing, right? And so imagine Mary giving birth surrounded by 15 people, 14 of whom she met like three minutes ago, and yet somehow it's still this magical moment. That's kind of the way that we, we package this. Like everybody showed up at the same moment and the wise men are looking for this newborn baby. They weren't looking for a newborn baby. That's sort of the Sunday school Hallmark version. Now, all that stuff happened. It's true. That's true. It just didn't happen all at once, and it didn't happen the way that we kind of think it does. When we tie these things all together in a neat little package by smoothing it out, we, we miss the richness of what actually happened, happening the way that it actually happened. Only seven verses in the whole Bible actually talk about the actual birth of Jesus. And I think the reason for that is his birth is immensely important. It's immensely important, but it's how his birth affected everything else that is truly transformational. And so we're going to look in Matthew chapter 2 about what that birth actually, what that moment actually looked like. Matthew 2 verse 1 starts out, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother and they bowed down and worshiped him. They, then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, 
they return to their country by another route. So there's three characters in this story that we're going to look at. There's three characters and, and their responses to this moment that we're going to look at. And the first kind of character group that we're going to look at are the visitors, the visitors. Now, they're called wise men or magi. Magi literally means great or powerful ones. And this likely referred to a priestly caste of Persians, or really more likely astrologers or people who sought to gain insight into the world through stars and planets, similar to astronomy now. It's really astronomy mixed with spirituality. They likely came from Babylon or from Persia. They're not Jews. I think if they had been, Matthew would have said that explicitly. And so these men are likely Gentiles. And what's interesting is there's nothing mentioned about them being kings. I, I know that's, I feel like that's a spoiler alert. Like that's the bad news. Like, oh man, that, that tradition dates back to the third century. There's nothing mentioned about them being kings and there's nothing mentioned about them being three of them. We likely refer to three of them because of the three gifts that were given, but it's very, very unlikely that, we're, that there were only three. Considering the scope of the journey that they took, which would have taken months, their positions of influence and authority and the value of the gifts that they traveled with, they likely came with quite the posse. So why did they come? Why did these guys come? Well, both Babylon and Persia had large Jewish populations. A widely held belief of the day was that the birth of great men was often accompanied by astrological events of some sort. So the Magi and those like them had likely come in contact with Hebrew scriptures and other Jewish texts that talked about the coming king and the signs that would signal his arrival. And they saw the sign. I was going to make an ace of base reference there, but that feels too old, so I won't do that. Uh, they saw a sign. We saw his star when it arose. Now, what is that star? I don't know. I don't know. Could it have been a, a comet? It could have been planets aligning. We know that Jupiter and Saturn lined up in the sky three times in 7 BC, and that would have certainly been something visible in the night sky and something significant that uh, astrologers and astronomers would have looked to. It could have been a supernova. It could have been an angel. It could have been the glory of God. We don't know. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know what we need to know. And that is that God in his authority and sovereignty created this thing to capture their attention and to draw them. What's abundantly clear is that whatever God used to get their attention, he had intended to supernaturally accomplish his purpose. We see that idea in the Old Testament in Isaiah 60 verse three. All nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to your, see your radiance. These visitors from the East saw something amazing and they wanted to know more. They were open to this journey and they were open to the experience. They were unlikely people seeking an unlikely place. The Magi heard about this new king and they wanted to know more. The question for us is how would we respond to that? How do we respond? Are we open to the journey? Are we open to experiencing Jesus? Are we open to it? the Magi were, are you willing to ask questions and take the next step in your journey? Is, an area of, is there an area of your life where you're resisting God? Are you open to taking that next step like the visitors were? Now, the second significant character in this story is the king. And the king here is Herod the Great. Herod was wealthy, a great administrator, a visionary builder, a gifted politician, but he was also power hungry and neurotic and bitterly jealous and paranoid, seriously paranoid. This guy was not a good dude. 
He levied heavy taxes on his people. He killed close associates. He had at least two of his sons killed and his beloved wife killed. This guy was not a good guy. And that's the guy who's in charge here. And he hears what the Magi are seeking. He hears what the visitors are looking for. And Matthew tells us that he was troubled. Yeah, I bet he was troubled. I think what what he was feeling was he was threatened because here's a threat to his power and his position. The Magi are seeking someone that's already being called the king of the people that Herod is currently the king of. This is a threat. There's a clear contrast in here in the text between Jesus, who is king of the Jews, and Herod, who is twice referred to as the king, a non-proper noun. He's just like, yeah, that's the king, but Jesus is the true king here. And Matthew tells us that Jerusalem was troubled with him, and I bet they were, probably because they knew what life could be like when Herod was troubled. Herod gathers the chief priests to him and the scribes, scribes really meaning experts in the law, and he asks them about this stuff. Like, what does this mean? Who are they looking for? None of the royal court, none of the scholars, none of the religious elite seem to go with the Magi. They tell him the answer. They point back to the, to the Old Testament. They say, out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they seem to know these promises, but none of the royal court, none of the people who share these promises go with Herod or go with the Magi. That's interesting because those who are most likely to go see this new king that has been promised do not go. The most likely to go, don't go, but the least likely to go, continue on. One of the things that we can take from that is it's possible to know all sorts of information about Jesus without really knowing Jesus. Herod heard about this new king and he was threatened. He was threatened. And if I'm honest with you, I feel threatened by Jesus too because Jesus upsets my status quo. Jesus challenges the way that I I live. He challenges my life. He challenges me for for authority in my life. He challenges me for who's king in my heart. I don't want to be challenged. I I want Jesus, if I'm honest, to kind of just fit around the fringes so that I can do life the way that I want to do it. And Jesus kind of fits in there as insurance for me. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is the new king. I want to be king of my life. And Jesus says, I've come to be the perfect king, the true king. Do you feel threatened by Jesus? And I don't mean threatened like Jesus is is brandishing a knife and you're scared. Do you feel threatened like you're challenged by Jesus? Folks, what we perceive as a threat is actually an incredible gift. Jesus upsets our status quo, our normal, to make us new and to invite us into a life that is fuller and richer than we can imagine. So we have the visitors and we have the king. And the third character we have in this story that's significant is the child. We have the child. Verse two says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And I just, I love that little nugget. I love that little nugget because what that's saying is something deeply significant about Jesus. Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews says that king is not a title conferred or an office gained by Jesus, but a position that is intrinsically his. Jesus doesn't have to be called king by people. Jesus just is king. He just is king. He's the good king and the perfect king who loves his subjects and looks out for them, who cares for them, who doesn't demand their obedience so that he can get what he wants from them, but instead asks for their loyalty because he loves and cares for them, looks out for them. That's the kind of king that he is. 
And there's a sense of that in the interaction with the, the visitors, with the Magi who come. Verse, uh, Isaiah verse, uh, chapter, six, verse, chapter 60, verse six, sort of foreshadows this moment when it says, vast caravans of camels will converge on you. The camels of Midian and Ephah, the people of Sheba will bring gold and frankincense and will come worshiping the Lord. We see this picture of visitors bringing these kingly gifts to Jesus. In this culture at this time, you came to power and authority with gifts. You came with gifts and these gifts weren't accidental. They just didn't grab whatever they had on the shelves. They're not re-gifting stuff that they got like last year. Like, oh, I don't, what am I gonna do with this, this myrrh? Like just, we'll give it to the baby guy. Like we'll, we'll pass that on. There was intentionality in these. There's significance, they're gifts that showed how important and how special Jesus is. Gold is an incredibly valuable resource. It's valuable now, just like it was valuable then. It's difficult to find. You have to dig underground and, That was hard back in the day because they didn't have the same tools that we have now. Throughout the ancient world, gold was used as a medium of exchange, as well as a precious metal for making jewelry, for ornaments, dining instruments, for for royalty. Gold was a gift fit for a king. They also brought frankincense. Frankincense is is an aromatic resin from the the trees of uh, Boswellia Sacra tree. And if you had Boswellia Sacra in your Christmas uh, bingo board, you can cover that spot up and I'd, I'd be okay never saying that word again. You know, frankincense was used in incense and perfumes. It was mixed with various other offerings. It was burned as incense. In fact, it was used in the tabernacle and in the temple to indicate the prayers of God ascending, or the prayers of God's people, sorry, ascending towards heaven. It would also have made everything smell a lot better. Frankincense was a gift fit for a God. And lastly, they brought myrrh. Now, myrrh was another aromatic resin. It came from a a small thorny tree species of the genus Comophora, which grow in dry, stony soil. It's got this resin that's a a natural blend of an essential oil and a resin. It's called an oleo resin, if I hopefully said that right. Myrrh resin, it's, it's this natural gum. It can be ingested by drinking it with wine. It was used in the embalming process to preserve bodies after death. This type of special ritualistic anointing was also applicable to kings and prophets that myrrh could be used in that context as well. Myrrh was a gift that was fit for a funeral. And so these gifts get tied together, just like we three kings sings about, fit for a God, a king, and a sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying that these guys had that in mind when they brought them, There's probably no way they're thinking of those things. But as we look at this story through the lens of the cross, as we look at this story with the benefit of hindsight, we can see the the purpose in this and what it reflected about who Jesus is and what he came to do. God shows up through through Jesus in the most unlikely way. Jesus isn't just the new king. He's the king of kings. Jesus isn't interested in sitting on Herod's throne for a time. Jesus is the forever king. He's the perfect king who cares for, protects, and provides. That's who Jesus is. Do we enjoy the freedom of knowing that Jesus is truly king? Here's the thing, folks. Jesus doesn't need you to see him as king for him to be king. Jesus is king. And when we understand that, and when we know that, and when we experience that, when we live that out, we get to enjoy the benefits of being part of his kingdom. 
That's what God invites us to. Jesus is the very presence of God. He's the perfect sacrifice. The king who laid down his crown for the sake of his people. And we see in this moment a a greater sense of who Jesus is because just as the Magi brought gifts to Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate gift. Jesus is the greater king, the perfect king, the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham way back in Genesis in the beginning of the Bible. Jesus is God's fullest expression of love towards humanity. It's a powerful picture as we sing this song that we see Gentiles from far away who don't fully even understand responding to God's sign to go find this new king and worshiping him because they knew something was different about him. This story is all about kings. You've got the three kings who aren't really kings and there aren't really three of them. You've got the king who'll do anything to stay king. And then you've got the baby who's truly king, the king of kings. That king demands a response from us. It demands a response from us. Christmas demands a response from us. Jesus demands a response from us. We can either receive him or reject him. We can run to him or run from him. We can worship him or we can worship ourselves. The one thing we can't do is be indifferent to him. Look at how the Magi responded. They were inspired by Jesus. They were inspired by Jesus. They moved towards him. They wanted to know more. Look at Herod's response to to Jesus. He was threatened by him. We can be threatened too. Because if we're honest, we don't want a king. We don't want a king. We want someone to come in, kick our enemies' butts, provide for us, and then leave us alone. That's what we really want. We think we know how to run our lives better than anyone else, including God. When we feel threatened by Jesus, we need to figure out what's in the way. What's that barrier that's keeping us from him? What are we worshiping instead of him? Where do we find our meaning and our value and our purpose instead of him? Maybe it's success because we're thinking, well, I don't need that. Or maybe it's shame because we say, well, I don't deserve that. Or maybe it's pride because we tell ourselves that we've earned it. Matthew chapter two shows us that Herod and the scribes and the teachers of the law were waiting for this moment and they missed it. They were waiting for this moment and they missed it. I don't want us to miss it. It's so easy for us to romanticize Christmas and get caught up in the hallmark version of everything that we lose sight of why it really matters. When God sent his son to enter into the world to be fully human and fully God, to intercede on our behalf and to rescue us in ways we could never do on our own. So what's your response? How do you respond? Who's king of, you, of your life? Who are you worshiping? What's your life ordered around? What's most important to you? Where do you find your meaning and significance and value? I want to be one of the wise men, but man, so often I'm Herod, but I don't have to be. And you don't have to be either. Jesus doesn't want something from you. Jesus wants all of you. He wants you. The journey of the wise men is really the journey for all followers of Jesus. It's long. It can be hard. We don't know exactly where we're going or even really how to get there, but we know that the end will be greater than we can possibly hope or imagine. 
Jesus came to earth as a baby. The King of Kings stepped out of heaven to rescue us. And we three kings singing this song reminds us of the forever king whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. It's a powerful thing for us. And so as we celebrate Christmas this season, as as you think about this song in the future, remember the truth that it points to, that Jesus is the child who came as the King of Kings to intercede on our behalf that we might know the life God created us to know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that's true. Father, we thank you that you love us that much, that you would move towards us that way. Father, we confess all the ways that we smooth out this story to make Jesus fit into our lives rather than challenging us to follow a new king. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to meet us in the midst of our brokenness and call us to something better. We thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.
beauty of the gospel is this. It's not simply about following good advice on how to get your life better. It's about following a king. And this king didn't just have the power and authority to tell us what needed to be done. He had the power and authority to do what needed to be done in order that we might have a savior. And that's some good news. We're so grateful that you're able to join us today. We look forward to joining you next week at our Quakertown and Souderton campuses. We're actually going to all be coming together. Kids, bridge, students, we're all going to be coming together on January 2nd and just have church together as one family. For all of you who are joining us online, we look forward to seeing you one day in one of our campuses. Make sure you say hi. But in the meantime, thank you for letting us join you at your campus today. Have a great day.